Hello and welcome to The Spectator's Books Podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and this week I'm very pleased to be joined by Kaiser Norman, an investigative journalist whose previous work has included a consideration of Afrikaners in A Bridge Over Blood River, but whose new book is turning her eye to her native Sweden in Sweden's dark soul, the unravelling of a utopia. Now, for most of us sort of, you know, hand-wringing liberal types, we've tended to be accustomed to looking to Sweden as this kind of wonderful social democratic utopia where everybody is paid for and everyone pays lots of taxes and you have a wonderful sort of uniform IKEA-style life and everyone's jumping in and out of saunas, having very wholesome sex with each other. And Kaiser's book paints an extraordinarily different picture, one that seems much closer to the sorts of views of Sweden painted actually by Infowars and Donald Trump. Kaz, can you start by saying what made you write this book, how you how you got started on it? So as you mentioned, I've written about South Africa in the past. And after my, my book, Bridge Over Blood River, came out, disgruntled Afrikaner reached out to me and he wasn't very happy about my portrayal of South Africa. And so he said, you know, Sweden's greatest export is unsolicited advice. And you should really start at taking a look at your own country. And I mean, you get feedback from readers all the time and not everything is, is kind of sticks with you, but this really did. And yeah, I, I really, you know, kept coming back to his comment. And, and then one day I, I stumbled across this this crime that had occurred in Sweden. And it seemed to me that this would be now the, the perfect way of, of telling the story of, of my country and, and what had happened. And so the crime was a mass sexual assaults of teenage and pre-teenage girls at a music festival uh, in downtown Stockholm. And it wasn't the, the crime itself that interested me because sexual assaults happen you know, everywhere all the time. But it was the fact that five months had passed without the public learning about this. And we're not talking about something that happened behind closed doors. This was in a public park. It was a tax-financed event. You had supposedly responsible adults there, you had police officers, security guards, members of the public parents even. And some of them, we later learned, had known what was going on, but instinctively knew not to talk about it. And why was that? I mean, because that's the sort of heart of... Yeah. So according to the police, the vast majority of the perpetrators were unaccompanied refugee minors from Syria and Afghanistan. And the festival took place in 2015, sort of at the heart of the refugee crisis. In 2015, Sweden took in more refugees per capita than any other European nation, more than 162,000. So I think there was a real fear. And it's a small um, nation, isn't it? I mean, it's sort of 10 million people. 10, 10 million people, yeah. So it's, it is quite a lot. And there was a real fear now among the, the media and the political leadership that any kind of negative press surrounding immigrants or, or refugees could spur xenophobia. One of the things that surprised me about this book was that what seemed like all of world opinion, when Donald Trump made that famous last night in Sweden remark, you know, I thought, huh, how ridiculous, how off base could he possibly be? You know, Sweden is a liberal utopia. And actually, you know, this book suggests that in fact, he might have been onto something. Can you, what was your reaction when you heard that? Yes. So so when Trump said, you know, last night in Sweden, the whole world went went nuts, really. I mean, he was there was an overwhelming reaction. And, and it wasn't true. I mean, there had been no specific incident that previous night. And, and so from that perspective, you know, it, it was taken out of out of thin air. But what fascinated me was that then the response. So, for example, our, our minister of, of employment, Ilva Johansson, was asked to comment on the BBC you know, 
to, to this, to, to Trump's statement. And, and I think also Nigel Farage had, you know, entered the debate there about, you know, sex stats in, in Sweden. Does. and Yeah. <laughs> and so she was brought in and she said that the sex crime in Sweden is going down and going down and going down. That was that was her quote. And that wasn't accurate. And she, you know, was forced to apologize to the Swedish How public. Because it's it's not going down. It's, you know, in the past decade, between 2007 and 2017, it's actually increased by more than 50%. And it's hard to, to measure sex crime because obviously many well, cases, yeah. most cases go unreported. And so statistics in this area are, are you know, difficult overall. But, but they're certainly not going down. And, and she, she, she should have known that. She's a minister in our government, and she was being interviewed on this particular topic. And she admitted that she was wrong and, and, and apologized. I don't know if that apology reached or, or if her admitting she was wrong reached an international audience. But what I found fascinating was that the whole world jumped on Trump's comment it was pretty silent when when our our minister of of you know employment did the same thing. One of the things that seems to come through is this idea of a sort of homogeneity, not a kind of racial one, but a, a sort of ideological homogeneity. I mean, you paint a picture almost of twentieth century and early twenty first century Sweden as a kind of soft totalitarianism. Yeah, so I went all the way back because I wanted to understand, you know, what were the cultural drivers, the invisible forces that had allowed this crime to happen that something of this magnitude could remain hidden. And, and the answer really, for me, was conformity, this kind of deep-rooted conformity that went all the way back, you know, historically. And so I wanted to, to try to understand it, and, and that's why I felt it was important to, to bring in the, the history. I mean, we've been geographically isolated, but we've also had a, a really extensive history of social engineering, which I talk about in the book, starting really consciously in the 1930s was yeah. when we first began to hone our conformity. I mean, one of the things that surprised me as somebody who came to this, you know, knowing, as I said, I think almost, you know, very little indeed about Sweden, was that, you know, the Swedish welfare state, which will hold up, you know, one of its founders, a Nobel Prize winner, you know, were actually really active eugenicists and that Sweden had this huge program of kind of forced sterilization and, you know, essentially a kind of really major eugenics program. And then there was a sort of, collaboration with the Nazis in the Second World War under the cover of news. I guess, do you think there's a collective guilt in that background? Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, as I said, it started in the 30s. The era of social democratic hegemony, if you will, started in 1932. And Sweden was still a very poor country at the time. We had some of the most deplorable housing conditions in all of Europe. And so the new leadership set out to try to bring millions of people out of poverty and they drafted this new social policies that they deemed would be conducive to that, to molding the new modern Swede. And, you know, statistics pretty much determined what, what should be fixed, what needed to be adjusted, and the one best right approach to doing things. And so citizens had to put up with pretty pervasive control. I mean, down to the details, there were recommendations even for how often you should air out your house or, you know, how to decorate your living space. We had housing inspections, so you could have a housing inspector request to stay the night if he felt, you know, if he you suspected. Bed <laughs> yeah, well, if he suspected that it was more in in terms of minimum temperature and things like that. If he suspected that your home wouldn't be able to maintain a minimum temperature overnight, then he could say, "Okay, I need to remain here and, and check that this really is the case." So citizens had to put up with quite pervasive control. 
in terms of their social policies. And as you, as you mentioned, we had Alvan Gunnar Myrdal were our most prominent social engineers of the time. And they w- both went on to win the, the Nobel Prize in their respective fields. Gunnar for economics and, and Alva won the Nobel Peace Prize. Nobel Peace Prize. So they were prominent people and, and they said things like, you know, the Swede has to get used to eating tomatoes and brushing their teeth before they can begin to appreciate, you know, sensibly arranged homes. But they also endorsed the more sinister aspect, as you mentioned, of, of biological engineering, really, where laws were introduced that enable sterilizations because they believe that we needed to weed out the dregs, as they called it, of society. So eliminate all physical and psychological inferiority from what they called the national material. And at that time, that meant the Tatar, the, the gypsies and Romani people and the you know Sweden's then immigrant population. All yes, they, they were certainly targeted by those policies. So was the average Swede, to be honest, because what started out as a policy to eliminate, as I said, physical and psychological inferiority was later extended and could be applied to someone who was deemed antisocial or feeble-minded. And feeble-mindedness wasn't really a a mental disorder, but it was more of a moralizing diagnosis that could be applied to anything that in any way deviated from, from the norm. So it could express itself in, you know, extravagant clothing, disinterest in your children, painted fingernails, promiscuity was a common one. And it was rarely... You know, no one would be sterilized for painted fingernails and and promiscuity alone, but they constituted ingredients that in kind of aggregated form painted this picture of of deviance that could lead a doctor to conclude that the offspring of this person would likely constitute a burden on society. And institutionally, I mean, one of the things that comes through is that this history of a very big state you know, intervention system, but you didn't have the sort of separation of, you know, executive and judiciary that we have here. And also that the, the press wasn't free. I mean, the television, when you had one or two channels, was consciously seen as, a, you know, a tool of improvement or propaganda. Yes. So I'd say that the television took over the role that the social engineers had in the 30s. That role was taken over by television in the 60s. And as you said, it was entirely state-controlled, and really with the purpose of, of educating the people on the one right way to, to live and what to think and how to behave and yeah, so very streamlining so it's, it's, the so population. So well-meaning, well but meaning, the institutions yeah. were not there to provide a kind of check. No, sort. no, exactly. No, well-meaning for sure. Yeah. But also a kind of question, you know, it is, it's a big state, it's a kind of social engineering project, and yet it seems very different than the sort of big state project we saw in you know Eastern Europe for the fall of the Berlin Wall in the sense that so much of it seems to have been internalized you know that that's what you describe is not as for example a press that is actively subject to censorship but one that sort of self-censors I mean how, how would you describe that kind of state of things yeah, I think, so I've, I've kind of coined this term that I call the unimind that I think has developed over time as, as a product of, we mentioned ge- geographical isolation, this social engineering, a vilification of, of conflict and a very strong focus on consensus and an early collapse of our class structures. And that really has honed our conformity 
to the point where there's almost like a collective consciousness where, whereby people who've been raised in the system know instinctively you know, what they're expected to do in a given situation, what they're expected to think, and how others will judge them should they deviate from that. Is there anywhere else in the world that resembles this? Not that I've come across, not that, I, that I'm aware of. No. I don't know. Sociologists make a distinction, don't they, between guilt societies and shame societies. And Sweden seems to be a sort of extreme shame society. You know, norms are enforced by how you imagine yourself being perceived by your neighbours and so forth. And there's a kind of terrifying quote you have early on in the book about branding. Brand, how do you pronounce it? Brandmarka. Yes. Can you say yeah. that? That's a sort of slight theme in the book. Yeah, so it's a quote by our former Prime Minister, Joran Pashon, who in 1995 said in Parliament that I and the government to which I belong will in every context forcefully brennmarka, which means, you know, to stigmatize or actually to cattle brand, you know, the, the mark you leave on cattle. Uh, sizzling flesh. Mm-hmm. Anyone who speaks ill of Sweden abroad. And, you know, it's, it's a harsh statement, but one that, you know, they've, they've largely lived up to. I mean, anyone who has had unwelcome facts or opinions have for a long time been denied a platform. But I think in, in modern society, obviously, that doesn't really work now with the Internet. And there's, there's always ways of, of getting your voice out there. And so then the end result has been that if you do get your voice out there and you're saying something that's not popular, then, you know, you, you become stigmatized, right? You, the unimind you know, turns on you. Yeah, the unimind turns on you and, and, and often on the person rather than the message. Can we come back to the, the sort of present day center of your book, this business, this crime and how it's covered? You've sort of got two, two characters you follow through the book and there's a strange symmetry to them in a way because one of them is a new immigrant to Sweden who's an Armenian person but he's a he's a white Armenian because he's he's albino and symmetrically your other protagonist is a Swede who grows up of of gypsy stock who's a sort of black Swede and is stigmatized that well not black Swede is dark haired dark haired Swede I mean was that symmetry something that just sort of presented itself to you or did you think you know I can I can use this yeah, I mean, they're, they're both, uh, you know, wonderful examples in, in their own right and, and interesting characters. So so Chang Frick, my one protagonist, is, is the son of a Polish Jewish immigrant and a traveling gypsy. And he grew up in, in rural Sweden, where everything about him was wrong, really. He was the local svachkalle, which is black skull. It means it's a derogatory term that can be applied to anyone with, with black hair, because he had dark hair, dark eyes. He had a really unswedish sounding name, and he was raised in a family who was unable to conform to the norms of, of rural Sweden. So all that combined made it so that you know he was essentially ostracized growing up. And this in a country that claimed to be open and tolerant and, and welcoming of all. And I think that hypocrisy really stuck with him. It became kind of the thorn in his side that he has carried his whole life and, and really wants to, to um, expose now Swedish hypocrisy became his kind of mission. So that that's one. And then the other is, is Samuel Atabaikan, who is, as you said, grew up in albino in, in Armenia, blonde, blue-eyed, and always made to feel the outcast there. 
but also had this fascination for all things Scandinavian. He loved Bergman movies. It's so sweet how much he loved Bergman as well. Yeah. <laughs> Garbo, you know, that, and, and not, you know, contemporary Swedish culture, but, you know, the, the classics, yeah. if you will. Yes, this lovely little bit where you talk about him learning to dif- differentiate between the different sorts of angst. Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, he said that ångest, which is kind of the Swedish word for angst or anxiety, but it really incorporates all kinds of terrible feelings. It can be applied to, to many things. There's like Sunday angst, angst, ångest, however you pronounce yeah, it. Yeah, th- there's angst, many different types of ångest. And he just loves the word. And he said, the first time I heard it, I thought it was the most beautiful word I have, uh, I'd ever heard. And I repeated it over and over, ångest, ångest. Really, yeah, it, it's lovely to hear him speak about it because it really moved him. And, and as you said, he internalized uh, much of it. But so he had this fascination with all things Scandinavian and decided to, to emigrate to Scandinavia, looking for a place where he could belong, where he could fit in, where he could conform, essentially. And it's really interesting to follow his journey because oftentimes when we talk about integration, we say that it's, well, it can be hard to integrate if you don't, especially in, in a place like Sweden, if you don't look the part or sound the part. But Sumble physically fits in very well, and he's a bit of a linguistic genius, and so he picked up pretty much flawless Swedish very quickly. So when he now looks the part, he sounds the part. So what are the remaining barriers for, for someone like a Sumble to, to truly integrate and, and become Swedish? And Chang's journey is a sort of very strange one, because he, he starts out, as you describe, and he's from a very difficult you know, troubled family, his absent father and his mother was, you know, extremely violent and, you know, angry. And so he's the outcast, he's, everyone's, you know, shunning him essentially. And then he becomes this sort of model young entrepreneur and he's a successful businessman. But then, well, that all sort of slightly unravels and he ends up involved with the Sweden Democrats. And this is, you know, who are a a right-wing party, who's the only one, as I interrupt me if I'm misrepresenting it, is the only one that, that challenged the idea of open-door immigration and was stigmatised consequently by the Unimind as being racist and evil and beyond the pale. And yet, you know, like quite a lot of people who ended up on Sweden's right, he himself was actually, you know, an immigrant or an outsider or, or an other. I mean, why do you think that that happens so much. I mean, you describe there is a small, you know, here and there, there are little sort of, you know, black-skinned Nazis. You know, there are a lot mm-hmm. of... Yeah, so in Chang's case, yeah. I think it's because he, in the in the late 80s, when, when the Sweden Democrats were first formed, they, they did have neo-Nazi roots. So there was an element, for sure, of right-wing extremism there. But... What they've set out to do is cleanse the party of, of those types of influences, and they've adopted policies of no tolerance against racism, and, and they've tried to be to clear out any follow- followers that, that you know were racist. Whether they've been successful in that or not is, is debatable, so I, I, don't, I can't vouch for that. But by the time Chang joined, they were still very much a, a stigmatized party, and I think he mainly joined because he felt that there were issues that couldn't be talked about, such as immigration, that anyone who, who tried to, to criticize the, the immigration policies were immediately labeled racist. And he felt that supporters of this party were 
essentially bullied that they were you know people would lose their jobs over joining and and they weren't allowed to you know they they were stigmatized for sure and and he just principally objected to that and decided that you know he was going to he was going to join that party but he doesn't really i mean he describes himself as a libertarian whereas the Sweden Democrats they want a strong state they essentially want to return to the old people's home with you know extensive health care extensive welfare and so they're they're not really a, a right wing party in that sense they're, they're a populist party but not conservative and so their ideology wasn't really a good fit for for Chang in in that sense and he also felt over time that he could be more effective in the stuff that he cared about which was mainly fighting political correctness he could do better through the media and so he ended up starting then this alternative website and and left the party before that yeah, and that's that's of course where he enters the story of the this this crime this this spate of sexual assault can you talk about how that came to Chang? I mean, because we had all these assaults, they weren't they weren't reported because I think you said, mm-hmm. you know, they were mostly unaccompanied Afghan or you know Middle Eastern immigrants, and weren't reported because of whatever you might call political correctness or the desire not to inflame xenophobia. Mm-hmm. How does Chang suddenly happen on this? So there's a psychologist that's on site during this festival with two younger relatives, and he witnesses a lot of what's going on and begins to to keep a a rough count. And and he sees about 90 men being evicted, forcefully evicted from the festival because of these results. And he sees, you know, girls come up to the police officers, and he witnesses a lot of what's going on and is, is deeply upset by it and expects to be you know, reading about this in the media in the following days. And then when there's no story, and the days go by and there's still no story, he reaches out now to the press, uh, attempting to, to alert them to this, that this has happened. And a journalist gets in touch with him, is really interested at first, and then he detects a change of tone when he mentions that you know, who the perpetrators are. But she she does say that she's gonna look into it and that she's gonna contact the police officers that that he has you know provided contact information to, but then she never does and there's still no story, and so you know the months go by and and he concludes that okay this obviously can't be talked about I was I was wrong to try to alert anyone I should have known that this is a, an, an off limit topic that it's futile. And so he drops the subject. But then when Cologne happens and and the mass sexual assaults on New Year's Eve there in in 2015, there's kind of widespread outrage all over Europe and also in Sweden. And you have now the the editor-in-chief of the newspaper that he reached out to writes an editorial saying that essentially chastising German media for not reporting on this and, and calling it a betrayal of, of the victims. And now the psychologist is really upset because <laughs> five days have passed and you know German media is being chastised. But in Sweden, five months have passed and, and no one has said anything. The story hasn't you know, leaked at all. And so he thinks it's super hypocritical, right? So, so he now reaches out to Chang and says, listen, I have proof that they knew about this. You know, a few days after the event, they knew about it. I've, you know, I have the phone records, they have the emails. 
I have you know everything to to you know yeah. they can't they can't fake ignorance here. So Chang, of course, is is very interested in this and pursues the story and goes on to talk to the the police officer and and the psychologist and go through their you know their email records, phone records. And, and publishes the story then that the media also knew and that they covered the story, covered up the story, and, and that they were essentially complicit. It's not just the police who, who chose not to report this, but, but the media also. Yeah, so that's how he, he comes into the story. And why do you think that the... I mean, that's one basic question. Why do you think it was the immigrants committing sexual assaults? Why, why do you think that that was the ethnicity or the origin of the people who were perpetrators here um i don't know that 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 i can speculate in that but but what the head of the festival i think it was the head of the festival said that they'd they'd seen so stockholm city organized the festival and they had seen this type of behavior for a few years now it turned out so when the story broke it turned out that they'd actually known about this problem not just from the this summer of 2015, but that it had been going on for several years at the festival, and that it was a new type of, of sexual assaults where they'd been used to to dealing maybe with drunks and and you know people groping or yeah, but now it was a systematic approach where gangs of men would surround the girls and then molest them or or you know have their way in the cover of the crowd. And so it was a different approach of sexual assaults that they hadn't seen before. So it's a new phenomena for them. Yeah. Do you think that you know, what you describe here, there, there are obvious echoes and resonances. What, you know, we have this, you know, the idea of parties, you know, slightly marginal populist parties that are maybe trying to expunge some of their more unsavory members. You know, it's the UKIP, we're getting rid of these people. You've got that fraught conversation about whether it is the right thing to you know whether it feels xenophobia to identify you know ethnicity or immigration status for people who are involved in sexual assaults we've had in Rotherham I mean do you think there are any lessons from Sweden for the UK from this story do the parallels work in any way or are they just echoes I think Sweden and the UK are very different in that in the UK you you don't have that culture of media censorship you you may have a fiercer debate, but you have representatives on, on all sides at the table. And I think Sweden's main problem has been that that the media for such a long time has regarded itself as, it's been very paternalistic, and it has seen it as its mission to protect the people from ideas that they deem to be dangerous, that they don't think the population can handle, essentially, and while advocating for ideas that are deemed to be virtuous and so it's a very different uh, media landscape and so it's it's hard to to compare I think in that sense no I mean there's a there does seem to be a sense that in which there's I mean there's the phrase virtue signaling is, is often used but that virtue signaling you know it's an entire country which has an idea about itself that's a certain way and that's that's is at odds with the way it behaves or the way that you know what's actually going on do you think that globalization and digital media and all the things that have caused that bubble to burst do you think they're going to cause a profound change in sweden i mean do you think it this unimind is at all sustainable or do you think we're seeing a kind of hinge no i i, I do think that things will have to to change as you say societies that have been successful and that have thrived largely as a consequence of their 
homogeneity and conformity mm. like Sweden has. I mean, the policies worked in terms of bringing us up from, from poverty. But societies like that will be under even stronger pressure from globalization and, and immigration is, is one part of that. But you also have, you know, pluralism of, of opinions, right? That the internet and, and all that that brings in, in terms of new ideas. And when you have a media that is used to advocating for just one opinion, they don't really know what, what to do with, with all that diversity. And when you have a political leadership that's used to advocating for one right way of, of living, they also struggle with now with multiculturalism. How are you going to handle a diversity of values, a diversity of cultures, and and our system isn't really set up for it. So I, I think it will have to to uh, adapt. Right. I suppose I have to ask finally, how has your book gone down in Sweden? Like a cup of cold sick, I imagine. Uh, not at all. I would say <laughs> there's been silence so far. No, silence? You haven't been brandmarked? <laughs> no, no, no one has even acknowledged that it's out. It's not out in Swedish. I haven't found a publisher for it in Swedish. I've tried. I've translated it and I've tried. Uh, I'll keep trying. I'm still hopeful. But we'll we'll see. So far, so again, usually, absolute silence. Nobody's, nobody's no reviews, no, no comments, reviews, no, comments. no, no, absolute silence. As far as I know, I haven't I haven't seen anything or heard anything about it. Goodness me! Well, it's a remarkable book, Kaiser Norman. Thank you very much. Thank you. You were listening to the Spectator's Books podcast. I very much hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, please do consider rating or reviewing us on the iTunes Store. We'd love to hear from you. <laughs>